Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Monday, and we are posting an instant classic for your inspiration. This message may come from anywhere around the globe, but is sure to stay with you for years to come. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. Thank you for that. 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. Hallelujah. The quality of preaching this morning has been such that I don't really uh, feel like preaching at all. I feel more like crawling under a rock. Hallelujah. Tremendous. I certainly don't feel qualified, but God, in His mercy, may help me. Hallelujah. 2 Kings chapter 3. Louis XIV considered himself le roi de Solier. That is French. For the sun king. He thought he was the sun king because he thought, literally, that the entire universe revolved around him. This is unfortunately not uncommon thinking in the human species. And it is, uh, I say it is unfortunate because it does enormous damage in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not so ill-informed. God knows who we are. And He knows that we are not the center of the universe. But I am here this morning to help disabuse some of you of that notion. And so, 2 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. Jehoshaphat said, If there is no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elijah, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I pray for anointing. I pray that you will communicate eternal truth here this morning. And you will help us to set our priorities and our place before you in order. I'm asking that you'll strengthen the saints. And each one of us, God, uh, will give ourselves freely to the purposes of your kingdom beyond our own personal agendas. I'm asking uh, for grace in the here, and if there are any that are not saved, uh, you'll touch them with salvation this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, uh, Amen. Elijah was known. This is a generation that wants to be known. This is uh, the generation of Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame actually coming to pass. It is a generation where people uh, seem driven to recognition and to, to have their name in lights. This is the generation of American Idol. 
and Joe the Plumber and reality TV where people who have no reason to be on TV are. And uh, Jerry Springer's type self-exposés. Can you imagine the humiliation of getting up in front of the entire world and admitting that you left your wife for a penguin? There's something kinked in your psyche to want to make this public. This is the generation of atrocities that I believe in part are committed so that the committer of atrocity will be known. Columbine and Virginia Tech. These people were trying to make a name for themselves. Though it be a nefarious name, it was still a grasp at being recognized somehow by people. This is a generation of bling. It's a generation where being somebody is fueling our culture. Being recognized, getting a name for yourself, showing up on the red carpet at the right place, wearing the right clothes, driving the right car, hanging with the right people. This is what seems to drive people today. They want to be known. Elijah was known. But what is fascinating is what he is known for in our text. He is known as a man who poured water on the hands of Elijah. He's not known uh, for some sort of uh, athletic feat or some sort of personality uh, or uh, character trait uh, that makes him stand out. He is known as a servant. That's his entire qualification. Jehoshaphat says, is there a man who has the word of God and a servant, mind you, pipes up and says, I know another servant. And that servant, he hears from God. It's interesting to me that a servant is the one who recognizes him. It tells us that Elijah ran with servants. He was known by common people. He didn't set himself above them. He was not something special in his own thinking. He was a man of common men. This is what men of God should be known for. Not for praying at the inauguration of the Antichrist. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you have to wonder, don't you? It's interesting to me, I didn't read it, but when Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel and the king of Edom come to Elijah for the word of God, uh, Elijah doesn't say, "Ha! this is my opportunity. The king will know me. What he says to them... uh, are, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Now, of course, if you're going to be a world-class prophet, this has a negative effect on your Nielsen ratings, and so you don't really uh, say that to kings. But where are the prophets today who aren't interested in making a name for themselves in the earth but are interested in making a name for God in the earth. Because that's really what it's all about, beloved. It's not about us, and it never will be. And we have to be very careful about setting out 
to make a name for ourselves or to be someone or to acquire power and influence or to somehow be lifted up in our culture or in our microcosm that we exist in here in the Potter's House Fellowship to set out on a quest for recognition, for power, to have your own name and your own kingdom is completely antithetical to the kingdom of God. And those who seek such are traveling in the wrong direction. When what concerns you is you, when what concerns you is your name in the earth, then you are working at cross purposes with Christ. Jesus said that this is what unspiritual or non-spiritual people pursue. Matthew 23, 5-12, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi! But do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we read these texts and texts like them, and we think how noble and how right they sound, how right it sounds to take that lower place and to promote others before yourself. Uh, But the problem is, who actually lives this way? Where are the men who will lay down their own agenda and their own significance and put serving others first? Who here, honestly, wants to be remembered for pouring water on the hands of your pastor? That that's all you need in life. You're happy to be recognized as a man who served his pastor well. Who among us actually defines greatness by being a servant? In fact, in this world, to be the servant of another man seems demeaning. I actually read an article not long ago by the... uh, It was about a uh, convention in Las Vegas of the... um, of the Association of Tie Manufacturers. Apparently, ties have fallen on bad times. People not only don't wear ties because they're no longer hip, but they actually feel that if you wear a tie, it, it speaks of, of being someone's servant. You are lower down the uh, corporate food chain if you're wearing a tie. CEOs today don't wear ties. They want everybody to know that they're the top dog. And so they don't have to wear a tie. They don't have to acquiesce to anyone's feelings or sensibilities because they're high. If you wear a tie, you're low. That's the way our generation thinks. To serve is demeaning. At this time in Elijah's life, he is completely overshadowed by Elijah. Elijah is simply known as the man who pours water on the hands of Elijah. Would you be satisfied with that status? 
Could you be satisfied simply being known as the servant of one above you? Would you be happy to spend your life ministering to another man's needs? Everyone wants their own juice. Juice is a phrase we use in Las Vegas. If you are a mover and a shaker, you have juice. If you are recognized, you have juice. If you're a big dog, you have juice. Everybody wants juice. Everybody wants to be known for their own identity, for their own juice, for their own power, for their own influence. This is human nature. How totally different is the kingdom of God? Philippians 2.22 But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. He says, Timothy's proven himself. He's proven to be a mighty man of God. Oh, well, how did Timothy do that? Speak at a conference? Get his name in lights? Run a mega church? No. He has proved himself by serving me. He has proved himself by being a son to my father role. He has proved himself by taking a subsidiary place to what God is doing through my life. And that is what qualifies him as a man of God. Write this down somewhere. To aspire to leadership for any other reason than to serve is antithetical to the kingdom of God. If you have any other reason for the pursuit of ministry, you're wrong. If you have any other reason for the pursuit of ministry... It's not going to play well for you. If you have any other reason than to serve for pursuing ministry, you are working in cross-purposes with God Himself. If you cannot take your place amongst the lowliest of the low, then you have no place among the mighty. And if you are not equally content to labor in obscurity, than you would be if people really knew who you were. Then you have no right to be ministering at all. And your ministry is nothing more than philosophical horse manure. (laughs) Kind of like today's public servants. We call our politicians public service. I haven't seen a political public servant in my entire life. They don't exist. Because they're not interested in serving you. I know lots of people that are like that. Can you believe Harry Reid's statement about the unwashed masses? He wouldn't even get in an elevator with most of you because you smell. This is a senator who's supposed to be serving you. He can't even get close to you. God deliver us from a worldly mindset about serving and ministry and position and power and a name. Elijah's name was made by service. And I want to think about the specific service that is mentioned here. He's known for pouring water on Elijah's hands. 
Not just general service, though general service is certainly defining. And we as pastors and we as men of God uh, have got to make the service of our people the priority of our lives. But having said that, there is a very specific act of service that is used here directed towards a very specific person. Elijah poured water on the hands of the man who was discipling him and raising him up in ministry. He served, if you will allow me, his pastor. And he served him with a heart that was very happy to do so. At this point in Elijah's life, he has moved into the supernatural in his own ministry. He has taken the mantle of Elijah, smote the water, and it has parted for him just like it did for Elijah. He has healed the waters of Jericho that were poisoned and uh, causing the, ro- the, the land to be barren. He's called out two female bears and made short work of a bunch of smart-mouthed church kids. And the entire congregation said, Yea and Amen! He's already off to a fairly auspicious beginning in ministry, and yet he is still only known as the man who poured water on his pastor's hands. That is a singular reference. Throughout the Scriptures there are uh, mentions made of servants washing someone's feet, of servants carrying water of servants watering uh, livestock. There's lots of different things that we see servants doing, but this is the only place in Scripture where it talks about a servant pouring water on the hands or washing the hands of his master. Now, certainly, it's not inconceivable. It's, it, I mean, you can see this would be a common act of any servant. It's not unusual to think of a servant holding the pitcher and pouring the water on his master's hands, yet the fact that this is the only place it's mentioned simply pulled my mind into a certain train of thought. I thought perhaps there's some significance here because the hands are always associated with labor. Just as the feet are associated with the paths or the direction of a man's life, the hands are always associated with his work and what he's doing and what he's trying to accomplish with his life. It is a mark of labor. Deuteronomy 28:12. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. Job 1:10. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. Proverbs 12:14. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. All of these scriptures and many, many more uh, talk about a man's laboring with his hands and the work of his life is represented uh, in his hands. And here is the picture of a man who is getting behind another man's work, another man's labor, what God has called another man to do, another man's vision, another man's ministry. And here is Elijah, and he is serving that other man's vision. He is serving that other man's life purpose. 
I was thinking about what happens to hands when they labor. The first thing they do is they get dirty. And when a man is laboring, his hands get dirty and pouring water on them is a type of intercession. Deuteronomy 21, 6-9 speaks of a, a, a situation where a body is found and nobody knows who killed him. And it says in verse 6, All the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Here are the elders, and they are washing their hands in innocence. They are washing their hands of guilt, not only their own hands, but in this symbolic act, they are washing the hands of their people. They are contending for a cleansing. They are believing God for a removal of the contaminant of sin. This is the act of anyone who has a heart after God. We want to do what is right in life. And we are constantly striving for this. But how many of you know that your pastor isn't Superman? And just because your pastor has been made a pastor uh, doesn't mean that he is now above the fray. Pastors still fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Pastors actually have been moved to the front lines. And if anything, the battle has accelerated and increased. Hebrews 5, 1-3 says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. One of the greatest things that you can do for your pastor is spend copious amounts of time on your knees praying for his holiness, his sanctity, and his righteousness. Your pastor needs your intercession. Your pastor is praying for you. Your pastor is washing his hands before God, contending for the innocence of the people of God. He's contending for righteousness and holiness in his church. It is absolutely mind-numbing today how readily sin makes its inroads into the church. People fornicate in church without thinking twice. Some churches are like bars. You just go go and pick up on the last ugly chick hanging around, you know? It's like... That was a horribly chauvinistic statement. Forgive me. Well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, I was... <laughs> no, that part's not true. <laughs> oh, Lamb, you're digging it deep this morning. 
Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. The, the, the attitude that people have towards holiness in the church. And a pastor gets up and he preaches on holiness and he contends for righteousness and half the church is going... They have no intention of being righteous. One of the most heartbreaking realities as a pastor is have to throw fornicators out of your church. I don't like doing it. But I would rather do that than just let it get loose in the congregation. Wouldn't it be better if people that went to church actually gave a flip about holiness? Wouldn't it be better if you came to church and got behind your pastor and said, you know what, I'm into this righteousness too. I'm going to contend for this. Our churches are not exempt from the insanity that is loose in the religious world. And people come into our churches uh, with an attitude that it just doesn't matter what you do and grace is all that you need. Grace is the empowerment by God to overcome the sin nature in your life. It's not an excuse to just live however you want to live. pastor needs your prayers. He needs your holiness. He needs contending for a righteous church. And he can't be the only one fighting that battle. Every one of us has to take seriously that challenge. I was thinking about what happens to hands that labor. Hands that labor don't only get dirty, they get tired. And to pour water on hands is a type of strengthening and support. Hebrews 12.12 says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Strengthen the hands. Our pastors need strengthening. They need that uh, encouragement. They need uh, that uh, uh, cooperation. That's what they need. You know, the most tiring part of uh, being a pastor or the most tiring part for a man of God is to constantly have to swim against the tide. To constantly have to minister to people who are at cross purposes with him. 
You know, when men labor together, they produce what's known as synergy. Synergy is when we're all on the same page, we're all doing the same thing, and it takes the, the efforts of two and multiplies it geometrically. And one does X amount of work, uh, two does uh, X squared, uh, three does... I lost the math flow. I was never any good at math. But it just keeps growing. One will put a thousand to flight, two will put ten thousand to flight. That's synergy. That's when people work together for the common purpose. But as soon as one person says, well, I'm not interested in the common purpose, I'm interested in my purpose, instantly, you, you, instead of producing synergy and an enlargement of strength, you produce exhaustion. Constantly having to wrestle with something that resists you. You know, I will not work on my own car. I would rather stay saved then throwing tools around the garage and filling the airs with colorful language. I do not want to lose my soul over a car. I've worked on enough cars to realize they are all designed the same way. Everything on a car is put on a car with four bolts and four nuts. As you begin to remove the part that needs replacement, the first three nuts come off easily. The fourth nut is welded to the bolt by gnomes in the middle of the night and cannot be moved and will spend hours upon hours resisting you. This has led to Lamb's not-so-famous fourth nut theorem. My fourth nut theorem is that in any given church, the fourth nut in church will resist you. Every fourth nut is going to give you a hard time. Every fourth nut is going to resist everything that you do, and your hands are going to get tired. Your pastor needs your synergy, not your resistance. And I don't care how old you are in the Lord. It's them old nuts that get rusted on. The old nuts are the hardest nuts. Your pastor doesn't need to constantly fight with you uh, to get the ball rolling. We have the classic old story. We've heard it preached a million times. Uh, how Moses lifted his hands. Amalek was defeated. Uh, when he grew weary and his hands fell down, Aaron and Hur came alongside and lifted his tired hands. Your pastor needs you to lift his tired hands. These men, Aaron and Hur, understood that if Moses succumbed to weariness, the battle was lost. Hebrews 13:17 says obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you If your pastor has to fight with you on every issue of the kingdom of God you will wear him out and ultimately uh, uh, it's not going to play well in your life 
When the Word of God comes from the pulpit, as Brother Haynes so wonderfully ministered, it is our responsibility to embrace it and do it. All right, I'll move along. I know when I'm beat. (laughs) Hands get wounded. Hands get cut. When they labor, they get battered. You look at a working man's hands and you see the story of his life. Sometime when you get a chance, look at Scotty Flitcroft's hands. He holds them together with super glue and staples. He's a landscaper, and he's not just any landscaper. He doesn't just, you know, plant nice little plants. He lifts boulders and throws them at people and, and, and eats trees when nobody's looking. And, and uh, you know, he, who needs a stinking chainsaw? But you look at his hands, you know, here's a guy who works really hard. Because hands that work hard get wounded and pouring water on your pastor's hands is a type of healing and a type of strengthening and encouragement. We've all heard the old adage not to bite the hand that feeds us. It is remarkable how readily men attack and wound their pastors and their pastor's hand and their pastor's vision. You know, all Moses was trying to do was get his people through the stinking desert. That's all he's trying to do. He's not trying to create the kingdom of Moses. He had an opportunity. God came to him and said, let's create the kingdom of Moses. We're sick of the people. We're sick of what they're doing. Let's just get rid of them all and start with the kingdom of Moses. If he had said that to Lamb, I'd have said, you're on. Let's do the kingdom of Lamb. That sounds a lot easier. That wasn't what he was after. He's just trying to get people. You know, all your pastor's trying to do is get you to heaven. That's all he's trying to do. He's not trying to run your life. He's not trying to control your brain. He just wants to get you to heaven. But Moses was the constant lightning rod of assault and of wounding and bitter, relentless attack on him. Zechariah 13:6 One shall say unto him what are these wounds in your hands Then he shall say those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends <laughs> Man if that goes on in the house of your friends what goes on on the streets Where did these wounds come from Well they came from people who never should have wounded me but they did kingdom of God is profoundly relational. You have to understand that. Jesus said that we will be known as genuine Christians by our love one for another. That includes your pastor. It's not just, oh, we all love each other, we just hate our pastor. It includes your pastor. This is not sentimentalism. This is not something you shellac on a piece of pine and put on your wall. They shall know we are Christians by our love. It's perhaps the most challenging requirement of discipleship on the planet. To actually love. To actually lay your life down for. 
to actually uh, uh, embrace someone completely different to you who doesn't see things the way you see them at all. Perhaps the most challenging requirement of being a Christian disciple is to love. Galatians 5, 14 and 15 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The kingdom of God is relational. Our fellowship is relational. Our church is relational. And if we constantly give ourselves to wounding and to attacking and to tearing down and tearing apart, then we will devour ourselves. We will be consumed. The Bible says in Zephaniah 1.9, In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. This is a picture of a servant uprising. This is a picture of a, perhaps a slave uprising. To jump over the threshold means I violate my master's house. I come in and I do violence. I start stealing things. I start destroying things and vandalizing my master's home. And God says, I'm not going to let that get by. I'm not going to allow you to turn your hand against your pastor without serious consequence. I grant you that everything I have just said may be more eisegesis than exegesis. But I have the mind of Christ. And God is concerned that we be men that will pour water on our pastor's hands. This is not just a self-serving pro-pastor rant. Most of my church isn't here. I would love to preach this to them. But I can't. I could never preach this in my own church, but I can nail your butt. And I can tell you that this is more than just, yay, pastor. This has to do with the functioning of the kingdom of God and the flow of God's word to his people. This has to do with whether we will hear from God or be alienated from God. We know that Elijah ended up with a double portion of Elijah's ministry, anointing, and revelation. We see direct lines, direct link between their two ministry, raising the dead, healing lepers, all sorts of similarities where it's very clear that the very ministry that flowed out of Elijah was communicated to Elijah and he was carrying on in that man's anointing. He was carrying on in that man's vision and that man's purpose. This didn't happen by chance. This happened because Elijah was committed to pouring water on Elijah's hands. And I am convinced that one of the cardinal principles of the flow of blessing and revelation and ministry in the kingdom of God is found right in our text. And I have watched men subvert this and you, you see it play out and it's the end of the flow of revelation. It's the end of the flow of blessing. It's the end of the flow of God's purpose in the earth. Pastor Mitchell preached last night in his inimitable fashion. Don't you love Monday night of conference? Monday night of conference is like being rudely awakened after a six-month nap. 
Pastor Mitchell always comes in and slaps you with a cold, dead salmon, and you go, oh, thanks, I needed that. It's a wonderful experience, and once again, he got our attention that we are in this for a reason, and we have a calling and a responsibility to impart ministry to men and raise them up. And it really doesn't matter whether you like them or not. It doesn't matter if you think they're the best thing that ever happened. If God's hand is on them, it's your responsibility to serve them. And to raise them up and facilitate their calling and their purpose. It's a wonderful sermon. And in it, he very briefly intimated at the other side of the equation. He made mention of Elijah Elijah and Elijah. And he, he said Elijah wanted Elijah's anointing. See, that's the other side of the discipleship equation. I may want to impart everything I possibly can impart to you, but if you don't want any of it, I can't give it to you. I may want, I'll tell you what, I want Pastor Mitchell's anointing. I want double. That's a tall order. I want that. That is critical in the heart of the man. He has to desire this, which means he willingly puts himself under that man so he can catch what is being sent in his direction. There is a willing service. There is a willing submission. Elijah gave it to Elijah, and we have to give it to our pastor. Jehoshaphat's comment, the word of the Lord is with him was based on one thing. He poured water on Elijah's hands. There was nothing else that Jehoshaphat had to go on. He didn't know who Elijah was. He didn't know anything about him. But as soon as he heard, this boy has served Elijah, oh, well then the word of the Lord is with him. Because he understood how it works. He understood how the kingdom works. Oh, he has given himself to this man of God. Well then, the flow of revelation is moving through his life as well. And I can have the same confidence in Elijah that I would have in Elijah. In essence, that's what Jehoshaphat is saying. Because this is the kingdom of God. This is the way it works. Listen to me. Revelation and anointing do not come in lives by random selection. Revelation and ministry and anointing is linear. It flows from man to man, from heart to heart. It flows from the head down. The anointing uh, was poured on the head of the high priest and flowed down onto his garments. We see it again and again in the Scriptures, Numbers 27, 18 to 20. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight and you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. Listen to what's going on here. This is God speaking to Moses and says it's got to move through your leadership, into his leadership, into the next generation and the next generation. It's linear. It's not random. Exodus 29, 29 and 30. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. I preached a sermon out of that text uh, uh, 
two, three years ago about how when the anointing oil was poured on each successive son, there was a cumulative effect that he would put on the garments of Aaron to be anointed so that that spirit would come and there'd be a double portion. Then the next son would put it on. Now there's a triple portion and it just keeps increasing. There's a cumulative effect because the flow of revelation and the flow of God's anointing and the flow of ministry is linear. It's not random. Psalm 72.1, a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Solomon understood. He didn't come into the kingdom by himself. He is the king's son. Luke 6.40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul had no problem laying claim to the way anointing flows. He had no problem saying the only reason, Timothy, why you have ministry at all is because I laid my hands on you wasn't just any old guy came along and laid his hands on you. I laid my hands on you. You have uh, many, many teachers, but you only have one father. And there is a linear flow to ministry, to revelation, to the kingdom of God. The flow of revelation moved from Moses to Joshua, from Aaron to his sons, from David to Solomon, from Jesus to his disciples, from Paul to Timothy. Are you getting it? I mean, do I need a chalkboard? PowerPoint presentation? Jehoshaphat had no problem with it, and he wasn't even a very spiritual man. But he understood. Oh, Elijah poured water on the hands of Elijah? Then he's got the goods. Because that's the way the kingdom flows. Elijah couldn't do an end-around run. He couldn't ignore this principle. He couldn't leapfrog and say, I don't need Elijah. I'm just going to go do my own thing. Gehazi tried that. It didn't work well. You have to understand, Elijah said, I'm with you to the end, Elijah. I am with you to the end. The school of the prophets that our brother pointed out never produced a prophet. Brilliant insight. The school of the prophets, oh, you don't need him. You got all the charisma and class that you need. Just go on, do your own thing. He said, just shut up. There's a love, lovely return there, a lovely rejoinder. They're trying to convince him to leave Elijah. And he says, would you just shut up? Sometimes you need to say that to people. Would you just shut up? You don't even know what you're talking about. Elijah himself puts the test to Elijah. Hey, why don't you just hang out here, man? I'm just going to go a little further. And Elijah says, no way. ain't happening. You can't get rid of me. I am the booger that won't go away. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. He was in it to the end. I want to tell you something. My prayer is that Pastor Mitchell outlives me. My prayer is that he outlives us all. 
I don't know how he feels about my prayer. If he's listening right now, he's probably loading a gun, saying, sure, I'll outlive you. (laughs) Stinking lamb, would you shut up? I want to go to heaven. I'm telling you, if I see Pastor Mitchell's chariot take off, I'm laying hold of the bumper. (laughs) Fine, I'll go all fingers. Fingers first, Bob. Fingers first. But in the meantime, I don't know much, but I know how the kingdom flows. I don't know everything, but I want to stay in the flow of the kingdom. And to be very honest with you, I have no problem being known for the days of my life as the man who poured water on Pastor Mitchell's hands. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. I will quote a man who never learned this lesson. He didn't want to pour water. And he was recently heard to say, I no longer hear from God. That's not where I want to end my days. I want the word of the Lord to be with me. I depend on the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is the only thing that keeps me half sane. I want the word of the Lord to be with me. I don't want to come to a place in my life where I have to say, I don't even know what God's about. I don't know what the word of the Lord is. I'm perfectly happy to pour water if I can stay in the flow of God's revelation. Elijah poured water on the hands of Elijah and the word of the Lord was with him. That is how it works. That's how it works. Your pride doesn't like it. Your ego doesn't like it. I'm sorry. I can't help you. All I can tell you is that's how it works. And when you violate that, you stop the flow. You stop what God wants to do. I'd like every head bowed in here and every eye closed. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless.